Day zero is the moment before company formation. When a founder decides to take the plunge, follow their dream, and commit to pursuing their vision of change. On day zero, you'll hear founders tell their story. From the initial idea, through reactions by critics and skeptics, setbacks and successes, we'll cover it all. Behind every company is a founder with ambition, goals, dreams, and wisdom to be shared. Let's explore them together. Hi, I'm Rishi Sikka, one of the hosts of Season 3 Day Zero Podcast. It's great to be here, and I'm joined with our guest, Ali Parsa, CEO and founder of Babylon. Ali, so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. Rishi, it's fantastic to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about Babylon, what Babylon does, what market you're in, what you're aspiring to do. So the genesis of Babylon... Our founding thoughts were that this model of care that you and I call healthcare, and often people say it's broken, it really isn't broken. The problem is not healthcare, it's sick care. It's what you and I used to do with our cars. 20 years ago, we used to drive it until it broke down, took it to a garage, they fixed it, we drove it. That's what you and I do with our body. And we thought, why can we not do with our body what we do with our cars? Why can we not monitor our data continuously stream it, have agents, AI agents or, or, or artificial agents looking after it and then alert us to intervene early to prevent crises and emergencies. Your own background, as I understand, has also been full of change and disruption and, and would love just to hear a little bit about your personal story that brought you here to, to Babylon Health today. I guess that's the part of your podcast that you caption as boring. No, it's exciting. It's exciting. Rishi, Rishi, I I was born in Iran. And then shortly after uh, I became a teenager, I had to leave my country. So I was one of the refugees that today in most of the Western world are trying to keep out of the country, unfortunately. But I, I arrived in UK at the age of 16 on my own without speaking any language or practically knowing anybody. And, uh, and I had to build a life from scratch. And it was a phenomenal lesson in what Malcolm Gladwell calls desirable difficulty. You kind of leave from a middle-class family you go into a situation that you never wish for anybody and you emerge from it. And you just think that that's great. So I had to put myself through education. I ended up at University College London. I did my undergraduate and then eventually a PhD in engineering physics. And because I had no money to pay for my PhD, I had to build a business. I got lucky. It did extremely well. It won the award for the best young business in UK. And like any other business, as soon as it wins an award, it's time to sell it. So we sold it as my PhD came to an end. And I saw the investment bankers who sold it for me per hours of work they did really well. So I thought maybe I should become an investment banker. And like every outsider, you look at these guys at the time with beautiful suits and ties. And I thought I joined that. So I became an investment banker and I was at Goldman Sachs at the end of my career, helping to blow the internet bubble. And then when in 2001, my first child was born, I left banking, not because I have anything against banking, but what I discovered is for me, it's more about building than going from one project to another. So it's that a difference between a project base or a long-term base building thing. So I went back to become an entrepreneur. And uh, and as I said, I built a chain of hospitals. It did very well. It was in the UK. 
but it wasn't solving the true problem. So then I built Babylon and here is where we are. And I have three wonderful children and an unbelievable wife that for some reason is still married to me after years of being together. How does that experience bear and play in your decision both to be an entrepreneur and in your leadership style? How does that background and lack of better word, upbringing come to bear in you as a leader? And I remember when I was leaving the border, my father walked with me to the nearest town. And then as I was leaving, as the people smuggler was taking me away, he basically came to hug me. And the smuggler said, hey, you cannot hug. They're full of spies in here. And so he grabbed my hand and pushed it really hard and said, son, just stay alive until we see each other again. Wow. And he wouldn't let my hand go until I promised him. And then within half an hour, I failed in that promise and I got arrested at the border. And you know, Rishi, what happened there was a soldier rushed to the revolutionary guard who arrested me and said, sir, sorry, you have a phone call. Could you please just go get it? At the time you had to go to the thing. And as soon as the guy went for the phone, he basically said to me, son, run away. And I ran through the border for safety. I have no idea what happened to that soldier, but my life ever since has been full of experiences of complete strangers that for no other reason helped you to do better. And I've seen that throughout my career and throughout my personal life. So we all have these stories and we all think these stories are about us, but it always is about those wonderful people around us who help us move on. And that's, that was a huge lesson to me. And for my style of leadership, I think it's come back to that. It's that it is all about personal relationship, personal. It's, there is nothing impersonal about professional. Right. Thank you for sharing that, that deeply personal story. You actually started your company in the UK and Africa. And I want to hear a little bit about the decision to go from, from the United Kingdom and Africa, the decision to, okay, we're going to go into the US market. And what's been the eye-popping or the eye-opening experiences of coming into what, what many describe as the most complex market for healthcare in the world? Maybe it isn't. You're a global company and you've got even a better perspective. Maybe you think it's, it's not as complex. We'd just love to hear about the decision to enter the U.S. and what was the eye-opening or eye-popping experience there? Our mission is to make healthcare accessible and affordable and put it in the hands of every human being on earth. So it was natural for us to go to somewhere that is diametrically almost opposite to the UK, not to another rich country, but to a country that is culturally very rich, but financially among the poorest in the world, Rwanda at the time. Yeah. And what we found was that we can deliver the same accessible quality healthcare to the people of Rwanda. And one of the proudest moments in the history of Babylon is when His Excellency President Kagame of Rwanda made primary care free at the point of delivery to all of his people, partly by giving Babylon to everyone or giving access to Babylon to everyone. And then the question, of course, was where do you go after that? And if you're a learning organization, you want to go to places that are very different than where you come from. And so we went to Canada and then to United States. And of course, you have to be in the United States. Healthcare is a very strange entity. And that is that it, it, I can't think of no other industry in the world, no other sector in the world, where a single country is responsible for 50% of all the money spent in it. 
like United States at $4 trillion of expenditure is almost responsible for 50% of the entire expenditure in, in healthcare globally. So if you don't have a part of that economic thing, you don't exist. I'm just kind of be curious. Would you say that the United Kingdom, from a healthcare perspective, compared to the U.S., is more oriented around population health? Is it more oriented around health and wellness fundamentally, or is it just something totally different? No, I think the problem in healthcare, Rishi, is universal. I think almost everywhere in the world that I know of or that we looked at, the problem is, again, going back to what you and I were talking about earlier, this sector we call healthcare, it really isn't healthcare. Its history came from waiting for people to get sick, and then we looked after them. It, it, is, it really is a sick care sector that we created globally everywhere. And that is true almost everywhere. Now, if you can go back all the way back to ancient China, where a Chinese medicine practitioner would only get paid while you were healthy. And when something went wrong with you, then they had failed. So you stopped paying them until they fixed you. So they had every incentive to look after you and keep you healthy. But that doesn't exist anywhere in the world, including in China. And I just think that we need to bring that back. I think every place has got the same problem. Yeah. And I think that this sector, this healthcare sector, the proactive, data-centric, patient-orientated, always on monitoring a model of care just doesn't exist anywhere. And it's our job to build it. It's just a more rational way of delivering health as opposed to managing crisis of sector. Before we leave this topic, I realize I framed that question. Perhaps it was making a judgment on the UK versus the US. Let me, let me flip that around in, in case folks took it that way. What do you find attractive about the US healthcare system compared to the UK? Or you know, what would you say are some of the best features in contrast to the UK or other healthcare systems globally? Let's just actually take a step back. The fundamental problem with healthcare is that, as I say, secure. But if you were going to create a proper healthcare system, what would you do? You don't wait until somebody gets sick. You actually take all of their data, wherever it is, from your watch to their phone, to their clinical records, to their uh, whatever it is. And you put all of that data in a graph database so that it is accessible at all the time. So you can stream it. You can be able to... Con compare it with other data. You don't need to monitor everybody continuously, but monitor those people continuously to see the variations, to reward them when things go well, but to, to alert early and intervene early when you have to. And then when you intervene, we try to do so first with care assistances for not clinicians, cheaper, more available. And if you want to go to clinicians, why do so in person? Why not do it virtually? So we do from care assistances to nurses, to primary care physicians, to ex experts, right? To specialists. And then when you need to refer to somebody, you refer to somebody physically. But the advantage United States gives us, Rishi, is that we can take the entire budget well, in a way that UK doesn't allow us to do that. We can only take the primary care budget. And by taking the entire budget, we can invest much more in engaging people in their primary care to avoid those crises, to save a lot more in secondary care. For many entrepreneurs, it is the ultimate pivot. It is the ultimate goal, maybe certainly for their investors. That is going public. 
would love to hear a little bit about the decision-making that went into it, why you did that, and the good, the bad, and the ugly about what that's been, what that's been like. That's for so many, the ultimate dream and the aspiration. And you can give us that perspective of what it was like and how you look back on it. Actually, I think for us was, uh, being very frank with you, was mainly the bad and the ugly. But let me start with the good. The good was we made the decision to go public with a SPAC for the right reasons. We did so because the company, at the time, it was the capital markets were doing superbly well, the public capital markets. Therefore, the cost of capital in the capital markets were cheaper and in the public markets were cheaper. And doing a SPAC was becoming all the rage it was. And there had one massive advantage for SPAC. You must remember this about Babylon. Babylon grew 400% a year, every year for the last, I believe, four years. So when you're growing at that level, our 20, we decided to go public in or announce a SPAC in, in February, I believe, 21, which meant we made that decision in November, December, 2020. Our revenue for 2020 was $80 million, right? So if you wanted to go public, we had to go back on that number. In 2021, we did over $320 million number, billion, and our projection for 2022 was $720, $30 million. This year, we will do over a billion dollars. And so we decided to use a SPAC because we could share this growth projection. The problem was by the time we went to go public in October, the SPAC market had fallen apart completely, and fundamentally you had no fundamentally you had no market left. I think that Benjamin Graham once said that stock markets are a um, voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine in the long term. Mm-hmm. And I think the job of us is just to put the weight on and wait for the for the stock markets to catch up, and they invariably usually do. It takes them a few years. Wow, that is an incredible perspective. What's your outlook on the macroeconomics and what are you doing to potentially additionally prepare for what may or may not come to pass, that uncertainty? It's an excellent question. I think Charles Darwin once said, it is not the strongest of the species that survives, nor is the smartest, but is the most flexible and, and adaptable. And that is true about companies. I think that we are now in one of the most uncertain times we've ever, many of us have seen. If you are, I'm in my mid fifties, but if you're a decade younger than me, which most of our investors are, most of our CEOs and leaderships of teams in various companies are, you actually, your working career have not seen any recession of sort, any economic crisis of sort. You've seen almost 20 years of uninterrupted growth with the exception of what happened in 2007 and 8, which really affected a smaller number of sectors. We're coming out of a pandemic and this pandemic will have as profound economic effects as any other pandemic in the history of humanity did. After it, there will be, so we're now all seeing that the logistical disruptions, uh, everything else. And by the way, we went through the madness. You could argue that was done for the right thing or a bad thing, 
But 40% of all the dollars that exist in the world, all the currency that exists in the Western world was printed in the last two to three years. So what did we think? We think that this is not going to have an inflationary effect. And as now, of course, we find the convenient thing of saying that, well, it's all about Ukraine and Russia. Inflation was coming with or without it. Then, of course, the disaster that is happening in Ukraine and the aggression there has also created an added pill to this. So we are in really uncertain times. And I think it's super important for us all to not try to fight it, but to try to swim through it, Uh, to try to be flexible enough to to say that, look, this is going to go and it probably is going to become worse than it becomes better. Now, let's hope that it becomes better (laughs) from here on. But we got to be ready for it becoming worse. What is not in dispute is that the existing healthcare, and and, and I should talk about that, the existing healthcare model of delivery is broken. It's going from crisis to crisis, and the current solutions are not going to provide the answer. So somebody, somewhere, is going to come up with solutions that will solve this problem. Today, a lot of those new solutions are under threat because the capital that fueled their growth is gone. Right. Some will survive. So out of this crisis will also come the vacuum that others will leave that gives us the space, those who stay, the space to really build the real solution. So I, I think that this is a double-edged sword, and we need to not just focus on what can go wrong with it, but we also need to focus on how we can emerge out of it as a massive winner. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I think you are definitely framing it optimistically. You know, as we wrap up here, you've started two companies that have achieved extraordinary scale. One of them, your current one, Babylon Health, is global. What advice would you have? You know, in many ways, that those are some of the penultimate success points, and you've done it now repeatedly. What advice would you have for, for a, somebody who's a founder right now? or aspiring entrepreneur, or at an early stage company, what would you, and and, and they're looking to you and what you've done, and they're like, give me the secret sauce, give me the recipe. What would you say, what would be your advice to them? I think that you know this very well, doing anything in life, take all the effort, anything that matters, take all the effort. So you might as well do something really big and to have a big impact. Dreaming big matters a lot. Second, is unless you build that dream and build and build it fast, it remains a dream. It remains for idealists. A lot of life is super short. Unless somebody can figure out a way of prolonging it, and people are working on it, I know, but, let, but it's going to go much faster than we think. So we don't have time to do things slowly. So I'm a big believer in that once you have a big dream, you have to work super fast with a sense of urgency to bring it to market. And I think our growth is a reflection of our frame of mind. And the third thing is being brilliant. I actually don't think doing a sloppy job works. I think that cutting corners, trying to grow without foundation, that just always collapses. So those are the things that we tell each other. There is something I add to that always to my own kids. That if you have a big dream, if you dream big, you build fast and you want to be brilliant, just make it also part of your life to make it possible for other people's dream to come true. Yeah. So my thing to entrepreneurs are 
dream big, build fast, be brilliant, but also be part of an ecosystem that allows others to build their dreams. Ali, what a wonderful close. And it's such a blending of both the professional as CEO and your personal. I loved dream big, build fast, be brilliant. And in that vein of sort of the blurring of the professional advice and personal, I also really enjoyed your phrases of desirable difficulty and swinging through it. Best of luck with everything for you and your teams as Babylon Health continues to disrupt healthcare and improve healthcare globally. Thank you so much for being here on Day Zero. Thank you, Dwishi, for having This is Day Zero, a podcast by Think Media. Subscribe to Day Zero on your favorite podcasting app or platform.